Well, we're going to continue our studies in Nehemiah. We started in chapter 8 and touched upon a few matters as the people gathered together for worship. Our subject tonight is responding to God's word. You read here in verse 9 of chapter 8, a lovely verse. It says at the end of the verse, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. What a sight! 50,000 people looking up to a single man. He was standing on this wooden pulpit made for the purpose, but above that, he was holding the scroll. The word of God was being read, the first five books of the Bible. For six hours he read it, and it was explained and probably interpreted so those who only knew the Chaldean tongue could understand the Hebrew as it was being read. And the people were moved. 50,000 people, some of which had probably in all likelihood never heard the word of God read before. 70 years in captivity. And while they were there, they were not much stirred by the things of God. They wouldn't have had the word of God freely available. And so they hear it. And we say it was an emotional moment. They were reminded of what God had specifically given to them as a race. God's word entrusted to the nation of Israel. Well, I want to try to attempt two things tonight. Firstly, in chapter 8, how did the people respond to the word of God? It was read it was read again and again over many hours and days as they keep the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. And the people felt their sin. So that's the first thing I want to do. How did they respond? Because the way they responded is the way that we should respond to the Word of God. But secondly, in chapter 9... We will see an, a great prayer. It's almost like a systematic theology of the attributes of the Trinity. And we will look at some of the aspects that they were stirred in a revival of enormous proportions. 50,000 people gripped, mourning, weeping, confessing their sin before each other and before their God. So firstly, how did they respond to the word of God? That's the foundation for spiritual blessing and revival. And then secondly, what were the catalysts that led to a revival of true religion within Jerusalem in those days under Nehemiah. Does anybody feel spiritually dry tonight? You feel a bit cold and barren? You haven't got the desire that you have had? You don't feel your sin as you ought to do? You don't have a desire to read God's word 
as you once did. Well, that's all of our experience from time to time. This idea of the victorious Christian life where everybody lives on cloud nine, that's not the experience of the children of Israel. And their experiences through the two captivities and then the experience of the people of God in the New Testament is of what we call vicissitudes, ups and downs. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we feel and know? Sometimes we do feel cold. And so as we consider how the Lord revived his people, let's look at the catalysts tonight, and then we can learn from these things and see what the Lord has done before. Will he do again amongst his people? He stirred up Ezra, Zerubbabel, and then he stirs up Nehemiah. Maybe we think Nehemiah's work is done. Rebuilding the temple, returning them to worship, rebuilding the walls, but no. Nehemiah's real desire is spiritual. Those were just foundations to enable worship to occur and to have God's honor rightly returned to where it should be. It was trodden underfoot, and under Nehemiah, the people of God say, No, his city of Jerusalem must be where he's worshipped, and worshipped aright, and his word read, and the people in reverence and fear and obedience. So let's look back at chapter 8, and I've got a number of things to note. I won't tell you how many, but just cover them very briefly. 8 verse 3, just note again, surely this is the beginning of blessing and the stirring of the soul. The word of God is read. We considered it was near Watergate. It was read for six hours, and all the people were attentive. Notice the emphasis on all. All the people were attentive. Nobody was nodding off. Nobody was half awake. Nobody was thinking of their holiday. All the people were attentive. They had listening ears. What to the law? They only had five books of the Bible, but the law kept them attentive. Real attention for God's word. Do we have that? That's the first thing in chapter 8 and verse 3. What about verse 5? Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and what did they do? When the word of God was held above them, they stood up. Now, I don't imagine they stood up for six hours. But as it was read, there was something about the occasion. Can you imagine the scroll is opened? He's standing there well above them. The gate, the water gate just behind him, they're spread out in the street. And they're looking up, and you could hear a pin drop. And the people stand, 
What else can they do? It's a sign of reverence and respect. Some people do that to pray in some countries. Nothing wrong with that. Many postures for prayer, but they stood for the reading of God's word. That's good. Respect. That's the second thing. Now this word must rule their hearts. It hadn't done when they disobeyed and when for 70 years they were in a position of lethargy in Babylon. But as soon as it's read, the people stand up. Respect, real attentiveness and respect. Verse 6, notice again the emphasis on all. And all the people answered, Amen. You've heard me say this before, but I'm going to put the emphasis on all tonight. Not just a few, not just a loud Amen from one or two. Sometimes I can hear the children most. They're the best. But all the people answered, not one, but two Amens. Amen, amen. We heartily agree with everything that's happening and we agree to be under the word of God and we agree for the word of God to be over us. Amen, amen. Do you know worship should be led? The worship in the Old Testament had the Levites and those set apart to lead the worship, but the people were to participate. They were to sing. They were to say amen. They were to stand up. Their faces were to be lightened. This is led worship, but it's also the full assembly participating. Real attentiveness, respect, a united response, but look at the end of verse 6. They bowed their heads. They've stood, they've said amen, and now they put their heads down. There is worship going on. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. He's praying. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen. They lift up their hands, but they bow their heads. It's dignified, it's reverent, it's solemn. They remember that God is holy, and they put their faces to the ground. Is this standing on a stage? Parading backwards and forwards, strutting their stuff? It's the very opposite. This is the people of God at worship. What are they doing? Their face is bowed. The solemnity. This isn't just Old Testament worship. This is the principles of worship set down for us. What they do, we must do. Reverent praise. No performance. No individuals. No admiration of people. This isn't about the people, it's about God. They bless the Lord, the great God. It's objective. Her faces were to the ground. Then we notice next, 
They've got understanding. There's clear understanding. We said that last time. People helped them. They interpreted. They did little adult Bible classes amongst the people. They wanted the children, the adults, to understand verse 8. They gave the sense. And this is what it means. The Lord's Day. The Sabbath. Why do we keep it? Would they have explained that? I'm sure they would. To be a memorial. To remind ourselves the Lord rested on the seventh day. To be a blessing to us, to be a witness to others, they would have explained all the reasons for the Ten Commandments. These are not just do's and don'ts, they're families with many cousins and aunties and uncles to these commandments, and they tell us about God. Wouldn't they have done that? And they gave the sense. And they taught the people, verse 9, they said unto all the people, this day is holy. They're teaching, they're showing. And verse 9, the next point, Conviction of sin. We can't emphasize this enough. Whenever there's a true work of God done, don't judge it by the noise. Don't judge it by the numbers. Judge it by the contrition of heart. Verse 9, for all the people wept. All, all, all. I think it means everyone. They wept when they heard the words of the law. Understanding comes by hearing, doesn't it? Hearing of the preached and the read word. There is something about the reading of God's word in public. I delight to hear other people read God's word. There's something about it that moves the soul. It gives it dignity. You understand far more, I think, when somebody else reads the Word of God. There's something very significant about it. And it brought conviction of sin, the realization of what they'd done, why they'd been in captivity for 70 years. They had a fresh realization that their personal sin and their national sin had taken them to be slaves. Conviction of sin. And then verse 10, there's something rather wonderful here. Isn't this what we should do as the church? Some couldn't come. They eat and they drink and they're celebrating their restoration and some they didn't have the food and the drink, and they send portions. But I rather think this is spiritual, not just physical. Some were too sick. Some mothers were nursing their children. They couldn't come. They didn't want anybody to miss out. And you know that's what happens in revival. I read an account just yesterday of a revival in Wales in 1904. They'd had a prayer meeting. It started at seven in the evening. It had gone on and on and on. Spontaneous prayer. The men, the women, standing up praying again and again. And they went home, 11 o'clock. 
You're late. Where have you been? And the father and the mother say, we've only just started. You've got to come now. And a daughter was there with her child. But I've got the baby. Bring the baby. And the whole village met and they prayed till two in the morning. That's not contrived. That's not worked up. That's not organized. That was spontaneous. They took the portions home and they shared it with the people. And those that couldn't come, they knew this day, verse 10, is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the next point. How do we respond to God's word? Holy joy. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, he said this, he struggled in his preaching and pastoring. He struggled with two things more than anything else. The first, how to make the wicked sad. The second, how to make the godly glad. Oh, were that the case here? That the wicked, that's all of us, felt more sad over our sin and felt more joy over the salvation that we have been given in Christ. Well, we move on, verse 16 and 17. The next response is the people keep the festival of booths. Do you know they probably hadn't kept this festival, this feast of tabernacles, festival of booths, the words are interchangeable. They probably hadn't kept it properly for 1,000 years since Joshua, that's what it tells us in verse 17, since the time of Joshua. This feast, this festival was a bit like a camp. We have people on camps at this time of year. They made their own camp out of the branches of various trees and they slept outside on the roof and it reminded them. It reminded them of their delivery. They camped in the wilderness for all those years because the Lord had rescued them from Pharaoh. That was no small thing. They were slaves the first time. And now a second time they'd been in slavery, in bondage. How right and proper that they should again keep this festival of their delivery, their own deliverance, a second time as a nation, at least 50,000 of the nation. And what do they do on the final day? Here's the final point in responding also day by day, from the first day to the last, they read the word of God again. I know it's not the custom of some chapels to have two readings in a service. But I don't apologize. We generally have an Old Testament, a New Testament reading. Not always, but the word of God must be read. 
It's only then that we have understanding. He read in the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days and the eighth day. The eighth day. There is what's called a solemn assembly. Why solemn? When people come into this church, do they feel a degree of solemnity? I hope so. I hope they feel joy as well. But there was a solemn assembly. The word of God is read. They pray. They keep the religious ordinances that were set down for that time. But look what it says. There was, verse 17 at the end, a very great gladness. Do you see how these things go hand in hand? Solemnity and gladness, joy and weeping, weeping over sin, gladness over salvation. Oh, what wonderful things. In chapter 8, we could have spent a lot longer, but I want to move to chapter 9. Those are the foundations. The walls have been built. The practical work has been done. Now the worship, the gathering, has recommenced. And those foundations for spiritual blessing have now been laid. But secondly tonight, let's look at the catalyst for what was once called a strange warming of the heart as the people of God come together after they've kept this feast, this festival. It says just a couple of days later, verse 1 of chapter 9, the 24th day of the month, it was the month Tigris, would have been about September, October in their calendar, and the people come with sackcloth and they put the soil all over their skin. Why the acting? Why the pretense? Because it wasn't. It was sincere. This is how they felt. It was something to do with their culture. I wouldn't suggest we go around wearing black. We don't need to do that. We don't need to paint our faces to show that we've been crying. But in their culture, in their custom, that was the way of expressing themselves. And there's something else here. They keep a solemn pledge that they were told to do. Leviticus 20, 26 I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. This isn't religious apartheid. They're not splitting the nations. This is spiritual. The Jews only for this matter. The other nations that were meeting amongst them, figuratively, they had to stand apart. That's what they did. They were so fastidious about keeping the law. They'd forsaken it for so long. Now they want to obey it. And they obey it to the letter. I have set you apart. There's self-denial. There's rejection of earthly comforts. They've come together. 
They've stood, they've confessed their own sins and the sins of their fathers that led them into captivity. National sins, personal sins. What follows here is again rather wonderful. We didn't read it, it's a long prayer in its entirety, but I want to pick out some of the things here, some of the aspects. At the beginning of the prayer, it says here that they said to the people, stand up and bless the Lord. If you've got your hymn books with you, uh, number 25 in your hymn books is based, I believe, upon this verse. And it says those words, number 25 in Christian hymns. Stand up and bless the Lord, ye people of his choice. This is chapter 9 and verse 5, part way through. Stand up and bless the Lord, ye people of his choice. Stand up and bless the Lord your God with heart and soul and voice. I love the worship here. We have good singers. We're blessed. And the worship very often is with heart. Is it of soul as well? The words into the soul and the mind and with the voice. Stand up and bless the Lord your God. The people are being called to worship and to worship aright. And so they come and then there's going to be prayer. He says, Blessed be the glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and all and praise. And then I rather think he turns from sung worship into said prayer in verse 6. That seems to be the drift. And I want you to notice 12 attributes. I shall just read them and a comment to each. Verse 6, the first one. The uniqueness of our God. They'd been worshipping many gods. They'd been idolatrous in Babylon and before. And now as they turn back to worship, notice that word alone. Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Lifted up, holy, unique, one God. Three glorious persons, yes, but one God. The uniqueness of our God. There's no other God like him. Secondly, notice here at the beginning of his prayer, this again is a pattern for prayer. It's a very good one. We could follow it well. The second point made is the created works of God. The heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the stars, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and that that is therein. And thou preservest them all. The second quality of God. He is the creator. The creator of everything. Creation. How can you believe in evolution? When you have a verse like that. 
God didn't need millions of years. He didn't need six hours. He chose six days. And the seventh day was the creation of the Lord's day and the institution of rest. But here we've got sort of a summary of all his creation. The skies, the heavens, the planets, all that is therein, the seas. And then the third point, he preserves them all, the sovereign protecting hand of God upon all things. Not a sparrow falls to the ground. Not a lily of the field isn't clothed without your heavenly Father knows. Thou preservest them all. We believe in a sovereign God. Nobody dies. Nobody is sick. Nobody has a trial. Unless the Lord permits it. And even through those things, thou preservest them all. He moves on to his redeeming work, his creating work, and then his redeeming work. And he lifts up Abraham, the father of the faith. Abraham becomes Abraham, called, chosen. He hears the word of God. He leaves his idolatry. It's a model conversion. He's called, he turns, he repents. He has salvation, and righteousness is accounted unto him because of his faith. He was brought forth out of Ur, a place of idolatry, and he was given a new name, adopted into the family of God, and he found in his heart faith. That's what it says. Faith is what saves He made a covenant with him. You know of his covenant. His family would be vast. And he would have the promised seed. It seemed so unlikely so often, but the Lord was faithful to his righteous covenant. It says at the end of verse 8, he performed it. God always keeps his words. Every word of God has been kept and will be kept. Why? Verse 8. For God is righteous. He can't lie. He can't fail. He keeps his covenant. Well, let's look at the next one. There, the people of God start to sin. And they are found in Egypt under great affliction. And they call out, Lord, hear me. Lord, this is too hard. The whip, the tyranny, the bricks, it's too hard. Pharaoh is cruel and severe. What does the Lord do? Tender mercy, compassion. Verse 9, he heard their cry. The Lord will always hear your cry. If you have affliction, if you have troubles, the Lord hears. He cannot but hear. And then look, verse 10, his miraculous power. These are all the attributes of God. He showed signs and wonders. He showed because he wanted to reveal his powerful arm. He showed signs and wonders 
For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them, so didst thou get thee a name. Why did he do this? Because the Lord's name needed to be lifted up. And then verse 13 and 14, his holiness, he gives them the law. This is a true law, they're good statutes. Everything about it is good. Nothing is irksome, it's for our benefit, it's for our blessing, it's a law of holiness. Oh, the perfect law of God, because we have a perfect God. And then his providence, go back to verse 12, I skipped over it. He led them by the pillar, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, every step of the way, and that's the way he leads us. Anybody unsure of the future, the Lord will lead, the Lord will guide. He gave them light in the way that they should go. Isn't that right? Marriage, friends, job. He gave them light in the way that they should go. He leads by his providential guiding hand. Verses 15 down to verse 30. It's a long account of the ups and downs, mostly downs, stiff necks, Hard hearts, rebellion, and it leads to punishment. The judgment of God falling. And the Lord still hears them. Look at this verse 17, repeated in a number of our Psalms at the end. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful. There's even more attributes here. Slow to anger and of great kindness and forsookest them not. He didn't forget them. He should have forgotten Providence Chapel years ago. He should have forgotten you and me years ago. But he can't. Because he's a covenant-keeping God. Because he keeps his promises. Look at verse 18. Awful. They make a golden calf, even when the laws of God are being given. They provoked their God again and again. Verse 19, yet in thy manifold mercies, thine evident, visible, demonstrable mercies, he didn't forsake them. He continues to guide to lead. Come down to verse 27. They had enemies, and yet the Lord, in sovereign power, delivered them according to thy manifold mercies. Thou gavest them saviors. Joshua. Think of Joshua. Gideon, who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. Oh, what the Lord would raise up such men now. Sovereign power, grace and mercy. And then verse 33, we'll finish with this. Notice his justice. Howbeit thou art just. This is like a summary. Thou art just in all that is brought upon us. For thou hast done right. 
But we've done wickedly. Can't we say that in prayer? We've done wickedly. We've done wrong. We've cut corners. Our thoughts have drifted. We've left off the means of grace. We haven't witnessed to our family. We've not obeyed the commandments of the Lord. The commandment to believe and to repent. And yet the Lord has done right. And he's been patient and kind. We'll consider it next time. Verse 38. And because of all of this, the people have to respond. They've had rehearsed before them. Not for God's benefit. He knew all those things. But they're saying, God, this is what you're like. We know it. This is how you've dealt with us now, Lord. Please continue in this way. Be patient. And we will make a covenant. Now a question. Did they keep the covenant? No, they didn't. Was it right to make a covenant that they wouldn't keep? People get very careful of that. The important thing is, was it sincere at the time? Did we do everything we could? We give thanks for children. We hope we'll do it in a few weeks' time. We have a number of children Little ones that have come amongst us. We're not making promises that they'll be saved. But we're giving thanks to God. And we're saying with all our heart, the parents, we'll do what we can. We'll put out of our lives what would be harmful. Look at what they do. They make a covenant. To make it binding, they write it down. They get the princes, the Levites, the priests to witness. This is solemn. It's sincere. But they don't keep it. It's quite searching, isn't it? How many of us have kept our marriage promises? In every thought, in every hour, in every day. But marriage is good. How many have kept our pledges of membership? to the Lord in the church. But the covenant of church membership is good. A covenant. Well, we'll think of this next time. They make the covenant. It's witnessed. It's sincere. You can't doubt the sincerity. And with the Lord's help, they will try to keep it. Covenants are for our help. The Lord didn't benefit from their covenant. He helped them to keep it, but they were to fail. Well, more of that next time. Let's close this evening singing.